Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Yo, stop your grinning and drop your linen. Found them. It's M, actually, Hudson, not um. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 114, Aliens. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. Welcome back, returning listeners, and welcome all you brand new listeners to this podcast. I'm so grateful that you're here, no matter how you got here, whether you are a long-term listener, whether you were recommended by a friend, especially if you were recommended by a friend, because that's really awesome that someone's actually recommended this podcast to someone else. I'm so grateful that you are here, and I'm so grateful that you're here for this episode in particular, because this is a really, really special episode. And I feel like I say that every single time. Every episode of Verbal Diorama is a special episode, but this is extra special, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. But first, as always, I just want to say a a huge thank you to everyone who listened to previous episodes that have not long come out, episodes like Toy Story 2 and also The Mummy Returns as well. What I'm doing this month in the month of September 2021, if anyone's listening to this in the future, I've basically dubbed this month Sequel Temba, which is a rubbish play on words. I know it's a rubbish play on words, but podcasts do really cringy things like this. So, (laughs) and I'm one of those cringy podcasts. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to do movie sequels to popular episodes of the podcast that have either been out a while, such as in the case of the previous episode, The Mummy Returns, that came 100 episodes after I covered The Mummy. And then in the case of this movie, pretty much literally a month, because I covered Alien, the 1979 original, that was episode 108 of this podcast. And it was also probably one of the most popular episodes of recent months as well. But even before... Alien, I wanted to cover aliens. And the reason why this particular episode is quite special is I actually spawned, which 
is kind of on trend, actually, if we're talking about aliens. But I spawned the idea for Sequel Timber because of aliens. Because I really wanted to cover aliens. And I thought to myself, well, I need to do Alien first. It's not a rule that I cover the first movie first and then the second movie. I've covered movies that are way along in franchises before. But I really wanted to do Aliens. And I really wanted to do Alien. And it made perfect sense to do them one after the other, and obviously put Alien first. So I slotted Alien in in August, and then I thought, well, I really want to do Aliens, and I really want to do it ASAP. And so I thought, well, I'll do Aliens in September. And then the whole sequel timber kind of came from that. So if you think sequel timber is really cheesy, then basically it's the fault of this movie, because I decided that there were so many movies out there, like Toy Story 2, X-Men 2, that I really wanted to cover. And so I thought, well, I'll put them all in this month. I want to start and jump straight in and I want to give you the trailer for Aliens and we're going to carry on all of this alien chat after this. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Yeah. I am me. Yeah. Yeah. I Nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving in, it ain't us. Get them out of there! on the Nostromo, Ellen Ripley's ship is found and she's awoken from hypersleep. After being forced to explain the events of Alien to Wayland yutani executives, she discovers that colonisers have been living on the planet that she and her team originally visited, now called LV-426, and that contact has been lost with the colony named Hadley's Hope. She joins a team of colonial marines tasked with investigating LV-426 and destroying any alien creatures they might find. The colony is empty of human life though, except for one small girl. Sadly, it's not empty of alien life. We'll quickly run through the cast, as always, of this particular movie. Sigourney Weaver as Ellen Ripley, Michael Bean as Dwayne Hicks, Paul Reiser as Carter Burke, Lance Henriksen as Bishop, Carrie Henn as Rebecca Newt Jordan, Bill Paxton as Hudson, Jeanette Goldstein as Vasquez, Mark Ralston as Drake, Rico Ross as Frost, Daniel Cash as Spunkmeyer, Tip Tipping as Crow, 
Trevor Steedman as Wizbowski, Cynthia Dale Scott as Dietrich, Colette Hiller as Farrow, Al Matthews as Sergeant Apone, and William Hope as Lieutenant Gorman. The screenplay for Aliens was by James Cameron. The story by James Cameron, David Guiler and Walter Hill was based on characters created by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett and it was directed by James Cameron. And before we start on this deep dive into Aliens, I would highly recommend listening to episode 108 on Alien, mainly because I'm not going to go into the history of the franchise, the history of Brandywine Productions and all that. That's all in that episode. And I don't really like to repeat myself because, let's be honest, I've got a lot to talk about in this episode. So I'm basically going to continue the story pretty much in the aftermath of Alien's release in 1979. So if you are caught up with that particular story, then fab, I will begin. Brandywine Productions, bolstered by the success of Alien in 1979, were eager to start production on a sequel. 20th Century Fox, though, which at that point was headed by Norman Levy, thought Alien's success was a fluke and that box office returns of horror were on the decline. And most importantly, that Alien hadn't been a big enough financial success to warrant a sequel. But Alien was a huge success. So what actually happened? Well, One thing that I did actually mention in the episode on Alien, which you've obviously now listened to, was that despite the movie being a huge success in 1979, 20th Century Fox had used some Hollywood accounting methods to declare Alien to be a financial loss. This was despite earnings of over $100 million against a production budget of $9 to $11 million. Brandywine Productions disputed this claim. And Fox basically changed their minds and decided that Alien actually made a $4 million profit But again, Brandywine Productions disputed it. Brandywine ended up suing 20th Century Fox for unpaid profits. This lawsuit was settled in 1983 and part of the settlement included Fox financing a sequel to Alien, which was at that point called Alien 2. Brandywine development executive Larry Wilson began looking for a scriptwriter for Alien 2 in mid-1983, coming across a script for an in-development science fiction film called The Terminator. That in itself didn't persuade Wilson to investigate. James Cameron, at that point an unknown first-time director with one directing credit to his name, which was 1982's Piranha 2, The Spawning. James Cameron had been inspired by John Carpenter's Halloween and wanted to sell his script for The Terminator with the sole desire to direct the movie. Gail Ann Hurd agreed to buy his script for The Terminator for $1 on the condition he direct. It was Cameron's collaborative scriptwriting efforts alongside Sylvester Stallone on Rambo, First Blood Part 2, which convinced Larry Wilson to show the script for The Terminator to Brandywine executives David Guiler, Walter Hill and Gordon Carroll. Pre-production of The Terminator in November 1983, James Cameron wrote a 42-page treatment for Alien 2 in just three days, outlining Guiler and Hill's suggestion of Ripley plus soldiers. The project stalled after Fox executives had a mixed reaction to the treatment. In July 1984, Fox had a new studio head, Lawrence Gordon, and with Fox struggling to develop new projects, he decided to look at sequels to Fox's existing properties, as you would do, and came across the Alien 2 treatment. The Terminator production had been delayed due to Arnold Schwarzenegger's contractual obligations to Conan the Destroyer, and so James Cameron used this delay to expand his treatment for Alien 2, doubling it in length. Fox and Brandywine loved this new Alien 2, and then James Cameron told them he actually wanted to direct this movie, by the way. But at the time, he still only had Piranha 2 The Spawning to his name, so they weren't particularly keen on this. 
In late 1984, The Terminator, written and directed by Cameron, was released to huge financial and critical success, elevating his name and credibility. The success of The Terminator meant that Lawrence Gordon hired James Cameron to direct Alien 2, and similarly, Cameron had worked on the story for the Alien sequel during the downtime for The Terminator and had lots of additional ideas. James Cameron, though, did have doubts on taking on this big sequel, especially a sequel to something so unique and so beloved. He feared Alien 2's potential success would be attributed to Ridley Scott, who obviously directed Alien in 1979, and that Alien 2's potential downfall would rest on his shoulders alone. Also joining Cameron on the Alien 2 project was his now girlfriend and collaborative partner Gail Ann Hurd as a producer. Hurd would be instrumental in the project, as we'll soon come to. James Cameron wrote a script and submitted it just before the 1985 writer's strike in February of that year. The script was well liked, but the budget was estimated by Fox to be $35 million, quite a jump from the previous movie. Fox executive Barry Diller offered $12 million for the project, which caused James Cameron and Gail Hurd to immediately quit Alien 2. Lawrence Gordon entered negotiations with Barry Diller to increase the budget, which he did. Cameron and Hurd then returned to the project. They quit again when Fox refused to allow Sigourney Weaver to return, because since her star-making turn in Alien, Weaver had become a bankable star from movies like Ghostbusters, and Fox were concerned that she would demand a larger salary. Cameron and Hurd were insistent that the project could not go ahead without her, so they left. And when they left, they basically got married, they went on honeymoon, and when they returned from honeymoon, Lawrence Gordon confirmed Weaver's participation after lengthy negotiations between Fox and Weaver's representatives agreeing to a $1 million paycheck for the star, as well as a profit share, which was considerably more than the $35,000 that she received for Alien. With Weaver on board, Cameron and Hurd were now back on board. And for her part, Sigourney Weaver rejected a number of offers to actually return to the series. She felt that Alien 2 was going to be just a cash grab sequel. The name Aliens did, after all, come from James Cameron writing on a board the word alien followed by a dollar sign, which became the title Aliens. She had to be convinced after reading Cameron's script, but liked that it was going to focus on the theme of motherhood. She suggested her own tweaks to the character of Ripley, what she might say or do in any given situation. And not only would we find out more about Ripley's backstory and more on the differences between the theatrical and James Cameron's preferred 1990 director's cut later, but it would also give Ripley characters that she could bond with. But most importantly, in the themes of single motherhood, a surrogate daughter in the form of Newt. Carrie Henn lacked acting experience, but when the production sent casting agents to a local school in the UK, Cameron liked her great face and expressive eyes. Henn screen-tested against Weaver, who to the nine-year-old was just that cool lady from Ghostbusters, and their chemistry was immediately evident. Aliens would be Carrie Henn's only acting role. She would end up moving with her parents to California, growing up, becoming a teacher, and has since married and has a family of her own, but... Really, really sweetly, she still keeps in touch with Sigourney Weaver, which is really, really nice. Another character Ripley could form a bond with was Corporal Dwayne Hicks. Originally, James Remar was cast and shot several scenes. Some scenes in the movie with him actually do still exist, but because he was shot from behind, you can't really tell it's him. He ended up being fired for drug possession, and he was replaced by Michael Bean the very next day. Michael Bean famously portrayed Kyle Reese in The Terminator for James Cameron a couple of years prior. 
The whole cast, once assembled, was encouraged to hang out together to form the camaraderie necessary for a group of colonial marines. The colonial marines were a mix of American and British actors who all, apart from Michael Bean, trained with the British SAS prior to shooting. Vietnam War veteran Al Matthews, who played Apone, also helped train the actors with weapons handling. Due to Michael Bean's late casting, he missed out on the training, as well as the opportunity to personalise his armour. He basically ended up with James Remar's armour. Jeanette Goldstein was hired primarily for her physique, rather than actually being Latina, like her character Vasquez. She wore dark makeup and contact lenses to look more Latina, because clearly Latina actors didn't exist in the 1980s. And this is probably the only misstep when looking at the movie with a modern lens, is that essentially this is a white actress who is playing a Latinx character. And it's something that just would not happen today. Principal photography began in September 1985, primarily at Pinewood Studios here in the UK. It was filmed adjacent to Little Shop of Horrors, which is episode 45 of this podcast, and it's one of my faves. James Remar, before he was fired, accidentally shot a hole through the alien set into the Little Shop set. And speaking of Little Shop and its tremendous practical effects and puppet work, this kind of seems the perfect time to segue into Aliens special effects. I'm a huge special effects nerd. If you've listened to this podcast on the regular, you will know how much I adore practical effects. So to me, Aliens is like a smorgasbord of brilliant practical effects. They are obviously all created by the legendary Stan Winston studio. In the previous episode, I talked a lot about H.R. Geiger, who obviously did a lot of the design work for Alien. He was not involved with the design or creature work in Aliens, mainly due to his contractual obligations to Poltergeist 2, the other side. A 40-person team at Stan Winston Studio developed the effects, supervised by John Richardson. It was Stan Winston who gave the chestburster arms in this version because the adult has arms. And then you realise that the chestburster alien has no arms. And so how does it pull its way out of your chest if it has no arms? But otherwise, they stuck to the H.R. Geiger original design. Uh, They created two chestburster puppets. One to burst through Barbara Cole's artificial foam latex chest. She is the character that they find who gets chest bursted. Is that a thing? It is now. And a second more delicate puppet that allowed for a full range of motion. While the movie is called Aliens, to symbolise the army of xenomorphs, inhabiting LV-426, in reality, only 12 alien suits existed. They were mostly played by dancers and stuntmen in simple black leotards covered in moulded foam. Detailed alien models were used for close-ups and puppets were used for when the aliens were shot. They also used mannequins, which stood eight foot tall, for when the aliens were contorted into inhuman poses. And honestly, one of the greatest shots in this movie for me, and there's a lot of great shots in this movie, is when you realise the aliens were in the walls all along and they gradually just uncurl themselves and make themselves known. It's truly one of the most brilliant, brilliant effects in this movie. And the fact that there were only 12 of those alien suits... And you immediately think from this movie that there were a hell of a lot more. And there aren't. There's only 12. Obviously, the main event for this movie was going to be the creature that laid all the eggs at LV-426 in the first place. So, obviously, viewers had seen the eggs, the facehugger within, the chestburster, and one alien. But the question still remained from the movie Alien. Who laid all the eggs in the first place? James Cameron decided on the hierarchical hive structure of the creatures... And if you have a nest or a hive of insects, you always have a queen. The Terminator had relied on stop-motion animation for the endoskeleton shots, but Cameron wanted a live, full-size, practical alien queen. 
And he knew that he wanted to reunite with Stan Winston to do this. He had a design in mind and Stan Winston and his team went off to try it out. So as a test, what they did was Stan Winston Studio created a proof of concept. It had ski poles for arms. It was suspended from a crane and it consisted of foam sections covered in black bin bags. It was dubbed the Garbage Bag Queen. If I remember, I'll post a photo online of the Garbage Bag Queen because she actually looks quite incredible for a proof of concept. Once they realised they could do it, they sculpted quarter-scale models and moved the production of the Queen over to the production base in England, where the full-size Queen was built by I. Obviously, there were no computers, there was no scanning, so basically everything had to be done manually. The Alien Queen herself was 14 foot tall, made of lightweight polyurethane foam. She was supported by various rigs or crane arms or from below. Two people sat inside to control the arms and the head was controlled by four people. It was made of servo motors and hydraulics, something that Stan Winston Studio had actually never worked with up until this point. So hydraulics was all new to them, but to move such a huge and heavy puppet, it was a necessity. Two heads were ultimately built for the Queen, a lightweight, more fragile head, and a heavier, more robust head that could take a little bit of damage. Each consisted of hydraulics and cables to move the Queen's mouth and lips. And the Queen's face was moulded by Shane Mahan, who also worked on the Monster Squad. I mentioned him in episode 96. Her face was sculpted in clay, translated from the quarter-scale model. He added and defined elements as he went. The face, after all, would be the defining characteristic of the creature. While Stan Winston Studio built the Queen, special effects supervisor John Richardson, who worked on the James Bond series, amongst others, had to figure out how to incorporate and support the puppet on the stage without the rigging being seen on camera. Again, this was before CG could easily remove cables and various support structures from a shot. In 1986, or just before, I should say, because this was obviously filmed before 1986, there was none of that. So they had to figure out, how do we have this puppet on screen without you seeing the strings? When the Queen stows on the landing gear of the rescue ship and ends up on the Soloco, she unceremoniously impales and then rips Bishop in two. A chest plate was built for Lance Henriksen by Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis, two men who I featured many times on this podcast, complete with a flexible rubber tail, at the start of the shot, the tail was laid flat inside the chest plate, then pulled out by wire to look as if the tail had punctured Bishop in the chest with copious amounts of milk used for Bishop's blood. For the next shot where the Queen lifts Bishop with her tail, Henriksen wore a harness with a tailpiece in front and behind and stood on a platform which lifted him to look like the tail was lifting him. A Bishop dummy was used with a spring-loaded armature inside that would split in half when activated to make it look like the Queen was strong enough to rip a synthetic human apart with her bare hands. And, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, but Lance Henriksen's head and arms extended out of a hole in the floor for his fake torso, which is a very basic effect. But it still works, and it still looks really good. Miniature puppets were used for the Queen's fight with Ripley and the power loader, animated in go motion. Miniatures were also used for the Queen's ovipositor laying eggs within the hive. The most famous image from the movie, apart from the Queen and apart from all of the other things that I've already mentioned, is probably Ripley in the power loader. So the power loaders were originally going to be four-legged. They ended up being bipedal and they were constructed from aluminium, fiberglass and PVC and were a full-scale prop constructed around stuntman John Lees, who was concealed immediately behind Sigourney Weaver. The machine weighed 600 pounds and included hidden counterweights to help balance it. 
Lees controlled the suit from within as it was suspended from wires or mounted counterbalanced on a crane. The hydraulics on the power loader in the arms and legs were actually just for show because everything was controlled by Lees. The actual production itself was incredibly tumultuous with Cameron often frustrated at the British crew's supposed laziness and arrogance for insisting on things like their daily tea breaks. If you are British, then you'll know the importance of a daily tea break, or for me, a coffee break. They are very, very important, and they're very much a British institution. And obviously James Cameron didn't really understand this. He was assertive to the point of aggression with the crew, who for their part thought that Cameron was inexperienced and unworthy of the job of director. James Cameron would often fire people who didn't live up to his expectations or his demands. Cinematographer Dick Bush was fired and replaced with Adrian Biddle after lighting the alien hive too brightly against Cameron's wishes. First assistant director Derek Cracknell was fired for ignoring Cameron's requests for shot setups. Cracknell's firing meant that the whole crew ended up walking out. At this point, James Cameron wanted to leave Pinewood and shoot elsewhere, but was talked out of that decision by Gail Ann Hurd, who basically said, look, it's not going to be easy to set up a new crew and new sets elsewhere. You've kind of got to suck it, James. So a meeting was called by Cameron and Hurd with the crew to air their grievances and suggest that any member of the crew who wanted to leave should leave the production. The crew agreed to support Cameron as long as he supported their scheduled working hours. The rest of the production carried on as planned, but relations were, shall we say, tepid to say the least. When filming finished 75 days later, Cameron reportedly told everyone, this has been a long and difficult shoot, fraught by many problems. But the one thing that kept me going through it all was the certain knowledge that one day I will drive out of the gate of Pinewood and never come back, and that you sorry beeps would still be here. Now, I am a clean language podcast. He didn't use a very bad swear, but... <laughs> I don't know what constitutes clean language for Apple Podcasts. So it's the B word, basically. So yeah, I think we can safely say that James Cameron was happy to see the back of this particular production. And despite the ongoing issues on set, Aliens was actually delivered on time and on budget. Post-production began in April 1986, and Cameron's final cut was two hours, 17 minutes long. Fox wanted the film under two hours, but Cameron had already relented and taken out several key scenes, including Ripley learning of her daughter Amanda's death, Amanda being played in picture form by Weaver's mother Elizabeth Inglis, an opening scene at Hadley's Hope setting up the Jordan family's discovery of the alien ship, Newt's father being attacked by a facehugger and therefore being the catalyst for all of this, as well as adding more details to Ripley's tribunal, setting up automated sentry guns in the corridors outside the colony complex, scenes where the marines liken the aliens to bees in a hive, and that there must be a queen, as well as a sweet little scene where Ripley and Hicks give each other their first names. All of this is shown in the director's cut, which is James Cameron's preferred version. That came out in 1990, and it runs at two hours and 34 minutes, and is in this humble podcaster's opinion, the superior version of Aliens. I'm a huge fan of this movie, and the theatrical version is a movie that I've seen many times. The director's cut was actually new to me. I'd not actually seen it until I watched it for this episode. And for this episode, 
I actually watched both versions again because I thought like, I might as well watch the theatrical version again because I've seen it countless times. And so I watched that version and then I watched the director's cut version. And I genuinely much prefer the director's cut because it adds so much more information and it's all valid information. It adds some really interesting little exposition scenes. But the scenes that had Liz Hope at the start, it's not necessary to know. And in a way, it, I suppose it is kind of better that they just jump straight in and they don't need to explain what's happened because if you've seen Alien, you kind of know what's happened at Hadley's Hope. But I really love that all the setup, I love the fact that it's Newt's family that's involved. I love the scenes between Ripley and Hicks when he says his name's Dwayne and she says her name's Ellen. That is the only time, I believe, in the Alien franchise that she calls herself Ellen because she always calls herself Ripley. If you ever have a chance to catch the director's cut version, it is available, I believe, on the DVD, maybe the Alien Quadrilogy DVD. I've got the Alien Anthology Blu-rays and all of the versions, the theatrical and director's cut versions of all of the movies are available on the Alien Anthology Blu-ray. If you're a fan of the theatrical version, watch the director's cut because it really does add some interesting additional bits and the sentry guns are very cool and the sentry guns actually also prove the fact that the aliens are intelligent it's something that the movie hints at quite a lot especially in the scene at the end with ripley and the flamethrower and she threatens to burn the queen's eggs and the queen basically tells her minions i suppose they are to back off and what the sentry guns prove is that the aliens learn that that is not the way to go, that they have to find another way in, and so they do find another way in. And I really like that about those scenes. Two hours, 34 minutes is nothing really in this, the scale of modern filmmaking, but I genuinely think it's well worth your time. Another thing well worth your time is the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of the podcast where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And it always gets harder, it never gets easier. I can't use the reference that I use for Alien because I try and make them unique every time. And the one I used for Alien was that Keanu has been an alien because he starred in the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. So I couldn't use that one again. The one that I have is bad, but I read that several years after Aliens, Michael Bean, aka Corporal Hicks, apparently he was considered for the role of one Jack Traven in a little movie called Speed. And that role went, of course, to Keanu Reeves. And that is how I link Keanu Reeves to Aliens because I couldn't find another way. And I know it's rubbish, but I kind of feel like there's no point me apologising because as this podcast goes on, these obligatory Keanu references are going to get more rubbish, okay? They are not going to get any better. So <laughs> I think I might just have to make peace with that. The timescales involved in this movie were quite interesting, especially when it came to the music. Because James Horner wrote the music for Aliens, and it was incredibly tight. James Cameron was, as we're finding in this story, incredibly demanding of James Horner. So much so that after Aliens, Horner didn't work with Cameron again for a decade. In 1996, they reconciled, and Horner produced the soundtracks for both Titanic and Avatar. Additionally, a special limited edition version of James Horner's score was available for the 30th anniversary on vinyl, but only 75 copies of that score were printed. So if you have one of those 75 copies of the limited edition version of James Horner's score for Alien, then my friend, you have something very special and you should treasure it because I imagine that is worth quite a lot of money, especially because this year is the 35th anniversary of Aliens. 
When it came to marketing the movie, there were some really interesting marketing ideas. One of the most interesting was the Reebok marketing. Now, you'll remember if you've seen the movie that Reebok designed a special pair of shoes that Sigourney Weaver wears in the movie. You'll notice them as she straps herself into the power loader. And these shoes were called the Aliens Fighter Shoe. And you could actually buy these shoes. They marketed them with an Aliens poster with Ripley and Newt on the poster. And the poster states, on July 18th, Reebok will preview a shoe that you won't see for 150 years. Reebok additionally reissued them for the 30th anniversary as well. So back in 2016, you could buy a special Aliens pair of Reeboks. Aliens also had action figures, punching bags, and board games, as well as several video game adaptations. Additionally, The Making of Aliens, a 300-page behind-the-scenes book, was published by J.W. Rinsler in August 2020. And when Aliens was released, it was released on the 18th of July 1986 in the US. The Karate Kid Part 2, Top Gun and Ferris Bueller's Day Off were all out at the time. Aliens opened at number one, where it stayed for four consecutive weeks, facing competition from new releases like Heartburn and Howard the Duck. It was eventually dethroned by The Fly, Aliens surpassed all expectations for Fox, the Los Angeles Times reporting long lines at cinemas even on weekday afternoons for the movie. And according to an estimate from Fox, if we can believe what Fox say of course, because remember what I said at the top of this episode, but according to Fox, Aliens earned $157 million worldwide on a budget of $18.5 million. So financially this was a huge success, critically also a huge success. Critics adored this movie. Believe it still sits at 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. People love this movie so much that even the Academy Awards got involved because historically the Academy Awards have never been kind to sci-fi. But Aliens is the rare exception. Bear in mind as well, this was the 80s, receiving seven Oscar nominations, including a Best Actress nod for Sigourney Weaver, the first in that category for a science fiction film. It also received nominations for Best Art Direction, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score and Best Sound, winning for Best Sound Effects Editing and Best Visual Effects. Sigourney Weaver was also nominated for Best Actress at that year's Golden Globes. And it also received two BAFTA nominations for Best Sound and Best Production Design, winning a BAFTA for Best Special Visual Effects. Out of the series of Alien movies, and bear in mind, I'm talking about the whole series, so I'm talking about the four Alien movies, the Alien vs. Predator movies, and the Alien prequel movies, Prometheus and Alien Covenant. I mean, it's not particularly difficult, but Aliens is the most decorated movie in the whole franchise, and for very good reason too. I mentioned other Alien movies. Obviously, there were sequels. I don't know if you've heard of them. Alien 3, Alien Resurrection. Uh, and they followed. I don't really want to say too much about them though, because look out in the next few days as this episode's released for a special episode on Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. So what I'm doing is I'm trialing some slightly smaller episodes on the podcast. I'm calling them Nanoramas, not because it's hosted by a nan, but because it's nano. Obviously it means it's small. So I'm calling them Nanoramas and they focus on tidbits of information about certain movies. And I've thought an episode on Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection together 
would be a really great starting off point for that series. So I want to try and do a NaNoWriMo every month or so, but I'm going to see how things go. But I really want to talk about Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection, but I kind of didn't want to dedicate a whole episode to them. So I'm just going to focus on the really, really interesting things about both of those movies. So find that in your podcast app. It will be there a few days after this episode comes out. And yeah, hopefully you'll learn something new about Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. But let's be honest, not as good as Aliens. Let's move on to social media thoughts. So I always like to find out what other people think of the movies that I feature. And I always like to start with the patrons of this podcast. And then I move on to general social media thoughts from Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. But I want to start with the patrons and I'm going to start with Andy. And Andy says, Aliens won a great follow-up to the masterpiece that is Alien, will always be a considerable second in the series. Sure, it moves at a much faster pace than the original, with its high-octane action and machine gun porn, but much like every single one of James Cameron's movies, it's only saved by good-to-great performances, especially Sigourney Weaver, that has to overcome Cameron's heavy-handed and, let's be honest, mediocre writing. Outside of The Rocketeer, this is James Horner's finest score, and it's always fun to go back to watch this, but I'll take the Ridley Scott masterpiece any day of the week. And it's an interesting comment there from Andy, actually, because I kind of feel like, in many ways, Alien and Aliens aren't comparable to each other, because I feel like they're very different movies, because Alien does focus on the horror, and Aliens does focus on the action, and maybe that's why I generally go more towards Aliens, because... As people who listen to this podcast on the regular will know, I'm not a huge fan of horror, but I do like Alien. And I think Alien is just a terrific movie and it sets up so many brilliant things. But for me, I kind of have to disagree there, Andy. I kind of feel like James Cameron brings something really unique and different to this movie. I don't think his writing is mediocre. I certainly think it is in later efforts, in later movies that he goes on to uh, write and direct, but say no more on that. I really feel like Aliens is probably one of James Cameron's highest points in his career. So for once, Andy, we're actually disagreeing, but in a nice way, in a nice way of disagreeing. But what I will do is I will still give you podcast a plug because I do that for patrons of this podcast. If they have a podcast themselves, I like to tell you all about it. So Andy's podcast is called Geek Salad and they're And basically, they cover everything to do with geek stuff. So movies, music, games, books, comics, snacks. Literally, I can't even think of what else they've done. They just do everything. And I've been on their podcast several times. I love going on their podcast because they are genuinely a brilliant group of people. And I would highly recommend that you listen to their podcast. They've got over 200 episodes. So there's so much available for you to listen to. I'll pop some information about Geek Salad in the show notes. We have another patron comment from Scott, and he says, An absolute masterpiece of action cinema, one of my earliest movie obsessions, and an enduring classic. Endlessly quotable, thrilling on even the 20th watch, and every single element of the film, theatrical and director's cut, is bang on the money. Effects still hold up beautifully, James Horner's score is incredible, and all the performances, especially the magisterial Sigourney Weaver, are brilliant. The delight of introducing this to my young lady was awesome. I have passed my obsession on to the next generation equals parenting win. Absolutely parenting win. And Scott is one of the hosts of Monkey See Monkey Review. It's a podcast about a group of lovely guys enthusing about film and they are genuinely all lovely. 
make sure that you have a listen info as always in the show notes and the next patron comment is from Derek and he says somehow I saw this before Alien and I loved it the action and scale can only be described as James Cameron it's so different from Alien and it's still so great where would this franchise be without Aliens probably not where it is today And Derek, of course, hosts The Midnight Myth with his amazing wife, Laurel. They talk about history, mythology and philosophy and how it pertains to popular culture. It's an amazing podcast. Make sure you check it out. Information on that is in the show notes too. And the final patron comment is from Brendan, who says, Aliens is a miracle. I don't really believe in rankings of good films in the franchise, but I feel the reason so many places in the pantheon of superior sequels is that Cameron avoided nearly every sequel pitfall while also setting the bar for sequels across multiple genres. Aliens retains the suspense of the original by trading some of the mystery, since we've seen the xenomorphs and know they're out there, for the dramatic irony of the audience knowing just as well as Ripley how screwed everyone is from Jump Street. Ripley herself also functions as an ideal horror-savvy hero a decade before Sidney Prescott, not because of familiarity with movies or genre tropes, but because of her lived experience, determination and common sense. And if that weren't enough, James Cameron spends 90 minutes showing how even military firepower isn't enough to stop these horrors, only to then deliver one of cinema's most triumphant action beats and one of the greatest payoffs of movie history. Aliens is a clockwork masterpiece in its theatrical version and a harrowing and dramatic exploration of survivor's guilt in its director's cut. And both are must-see viewing for anyone who likes good things that are dope. Absolutely agree 100% with everything you've said, Brendan. Brendan doesn't have a podcast, but he is a really, really cool guy and always gives great comments to these episodes too. A huge thank you to all the patrons. We're going to move over to the comments over on Twitter and we're going to start with at Chance Whitmore 5 who says, I love this movie. Best pure military sci-fi movie ever. The Vietnam overtones everywhere. Sigourney Weaver is amazing in this role, being tough, damaged and heroic all at the same time one of my top five favourite films. At Hugo's Post says, if you don't spend at least 40 minutes on Bill Paxton's award-winning performance, can you even consider yourself an Aliens fan? I don't know if I've spent 40 minutes on Bill Paxton, but I have purposely included a lot of Bill Paxton clips because Hudson by far is one of the best characters in this movie and RIP Bill Paxton, what a legend he was. At Movie Mania 77 said, I was going to give that quote to go with this image, then I thought the Twitter algorithm might think I'm being abusive and decided against it. And that comment is basically because, so I used an image from the movie, it's of Sigourney Weaver in the power loader, and the quote that I used was, all right, sweethearts, you heard the woman and you know the drill, assholes and elbows. To be honest, I'm happy to say that on my podcast. I don't think that's terribly abusive. I mean, if it is abusive, then apologies for anyone who thought that line was me being abusive. It really wasn't. Uh, I just really wanted people to comment, and obviously lots of people did, so that's great. At Thief CGT said, One of my favourite sequels and films ever. I love how it takes the premise of the first one and takes it to a different direction, maintaining the tension but adding great action to it. Also, I know I'm in the minority, but the director's cut is my choice. The scene where Ripley finds out about her daughter's fate is one of the most heart-wrenching scenes I've seen. And in less than a minute, Weaver acted the hell out of it. I think I've already mentioned in this episode that the director's cut is also my choice. Uh, I definitely think it's the better version. 
And Phil the Bear said, Absolutely love this film. Was surprised to see a disclaimer on it for outdated views recently. Was genuinely surprised they did Brownface. Jeanette Goldstein is brilliant as Vasquez. It is still an amazing movie. I think it also proves why disclaimers are important. Moving over to Instagram, we have at Xerxes Havelock who says, An example of cinema where not only are there no supernatural abilities, but no one does anything heroic, i.e. larger than life. Everything is completely plausible and that's so rare in the genre. At Sassy Lassie 76 said, I think this is a brilliant sequel. As an impressionable child, Ripley was the kind of strong woman I wanted to be when I grew up. Her devotion to saving Newt makes me a bit emotional, not gonna lie. I saw this in the theatre when it came out and the roar of the audience when Ripley shows up in the suit to fight the Queen was deafening. The entire crowd clapped, whistled and cheered. Ripley is truly a badass. At NZ Waffles said, Bigger, badder, Vietnam in space. What's not to love? The best sequel to one of the best sci-fi films ever made. The B is back and I'm here for it. I'm not going to say the B word, but the, the B word. Uh, <laughs> and finally, at Vegemorph said, My favourite James Cameron film and favourite entry in the Alien series. The director's cut especially really fleshes out the characters and the story. So I was absolutely hooked from beginning to end. I would have loved to see more adventures with these characters, but sadly that didn't come to pass. No comments over on Facebook, no big surprise there. But as always, a huge thank you to everyone who provided their comments for this episode on Aliens. Aliens is seen as many things. It's seen as an allegory to the Vietnam War, the high-tech unit, aka the USA, beaten by a low-tech enemy, aka the Viet Cong. It's about taking your past traumas and confronting them head-on. It's about the coming together of family, whether that's the Marines or the traditional nuclear family of a mum like Ripley, dad like Hicks and a child like Newt. Aliens, as I say, is my favourite of this franchise, closely followed by Alien. Aliens takes what Alien builds and gives it more emotional weight. The colonial Marines are all brilliantly realised characters, but you easily fall in love with the supporting cast here. Hudson especially, a wonderful and much missed Bill Paxton, let's be honest, takes the role normally given to the female character, the what are we gonna do character, but still embellishes that character with humour, humanity and heart. And what can you say about Hicks? The subtle flirtations between him and Ripley never feel out of place in an action movie where they easily could. Michael Bean plays well with a strong female character. We also saw this in The Terminator. Knowing what happens to him at the start of Alien 3 still hurts. And that's something that I'm going to touch on a little bit in the episode I'm going to do on Alien 3. Bishop, Lance Henriksen's performance, remains probably one of the most endearing as Ripley struggles to trust the synthetic human aboard the ship, especially after what happened with Ash, but who turns out to literally save them all. Bishop is without a doubt one of the greatest characters in the entire Alien franchise. It would be easy to make him evil, and they do actually suggest that, but his being ripped apart by the Alien Queen, milk frothing at his mouth, still breaks my heart. And despite being ripped apart, he still saves Newt. Bishop is an absolute hero in this movie, and obviously Newt as well. Ripley never needed a reason to save anyone, but while Alien successfully gives Ripley the femininity and strength she'd need to survive the first movie, James Cameron builds on those foundations. Ripley never sacrifices her femininity or her strength or indeed her maternal instincts. And in other movies, femininity and motherhood are often seen as either an issue or a negative trait or something that the woman ends up doing after she's saved everyone. I mentioned in the last episode on Alien that it's rare that a woman on screen can be both feminine and tough. Adding Newt into the equation 
who's hardly a character that can't fend for herself, by the way, adds a layer to Ripley that we never saw in Alien. We learn in the director's cut that Ripley's daughter has passed away in her 60s, but even without that knowledge, Ripley's maternal instinct is both antithetical and comparable to that of the Alien Queen. Not to mention the fact that Ripley is belittled, ignored and regularly gaslighted by men in this movie when she is literally the only one with experience. And it grates me every single time Burt calls her kiddo. Oh my God, that annoys me so much. Burke is actually a great antagonist in this movie because he is so condescending to Ripley and it's clear that his motives are not all right. But kiddo, ugh, that really, really grates me every single time. The aliens prove that they are smart and adaptable. As I said before, it's more obvious in the director's cut that they learn to avoid traps. But most importantly, they're not just mindless killers. They have a goal. And their one goal is to survive and to breed. While the alien queen's motherhood is selfish, Ripley's is selfless. She's willing to die to save Newt. She actually says to Newt she will never leave her, cross her heart and hope to die. And she goes through with that promise. She basically is willing to die to save this kid, as any mother would want to save their child. There's a reason this movie is seen as one of the greatest sequels of all time. It's a movie that takes what the previous movie started, expands the universal law without sacrificing anything that Alien did, carries on the story while also working as a standalone movie in its own right as well. It's cemented Ellen Ripley as a great action hero, gives you supporting characters you actually care about. Even James Cameron considers Aliens to be one of his most special and enduring films. Knowing Ripley, Newt, Hicks and sort of Bishop all survive at the end and plan to sleep all the way home, is a satisfactory end to the story. What comes next is for another episode. As I say, expect a smaller episode in your podcast apps a few days after this one on what came next for Ripley, if you don't know already, and the issues, and there are many issues, surrounding both Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. But for now, let's all just allow ourselves to dream of a happier ending for these characters, just like Ripley and Newt can. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Aliens. If you did love this episode, please consider taking a moment to leave a rating or a review on something like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, retweet or like posts on social media, or you could tell your friends and family. All of those things will help this podcast grow and help it be noticed by others. If you like this episode on Aliens, you might also like one of the following episodes. I've already mentioned it actually, but I'm going to recommend episode 45, Little Shop of Horrors, for no reason other than it's got great practical effects and it's really, really cool and filmed at the same place at the same time so why not episode 48 the thing obviously another fantastic sci-fi movie leaning more towards sci-fi horror i believe i recommended it in the episode on alien as well but you can't go wrong with john carpenter and kurt russell and some incredible practical effects so yeah obviously i'm going to recommend the thing and also episode 108 which is on Alien, which obviously is a great partner to this episode because they're about the same franchise. And in that episode, I talk a lot about the underlying themes of that movie, the kind of dark sexual undertones of Alien. It is a really fascinating movie because if you like this episode, I guarantee you will like the episode on Alien as well. Obviously, as always, give me feedback. Let me know what you think. 
Next episode is actually a change to the schedule. I'll be honest, I was originally going to do Shrek 2, but like with all things on this podcast, I reserve the right to change the schedule at a moment's notice, and so I decided to invoke that because I wasn't feeling Shrek 2. I do schedules months in advance, and when it came to doing the next episode on Shrek 2, I just really wasn't feeling it. I was just... There was something about Shrek 2. Great movie, by the way. Love Shrek 2. But I just really wasn't feeling excited about doing Shrek 2. And one movie kept popping into my head and kept kind of nagging me and saying, you should do this one instead. You should cover us. So I basically decided to change. So instead of Shrek 2, I'm going to be doing a sequel that's famous for not only satirising sequels, but also being completely different in tone to its famous predecessor. And as I say, as much as I love Shrek 2, it just does not compare to the sheer craziness of Gremlins 2, the new batch. The Gremlins have been in my head and (laughs) and have basically said to me, you need to cover Gremlins 2, the new batch. It's a sequel Joe Dante wanted to make to ensure that there were no more Gremlins movies. It's a fan favourite for good reason. So I hope you will join me next Thursday for that movie. And in the meantime... I hope you'll also join me for a little bit of a chat on Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. But otherwise, join me for Gremlins 2, the new batch, next week. If you wish to follow me and say hi, you can do so at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. You can also email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com and you can also pop over to my website, which is verbaldiorama.com. Huge thank you to the patrons of this podcast. You can sign up to support the show as well if you want at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. The patrons, they are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan and Sam. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. <laughs> That's actually not a bad Hudson impression. Uh, normally I'm terrible at impressions, but that one was fine. I have a merch store, verbaldiorama.com slash merch. I am planning to revamp that. I know I say that every week. I genuinely am um, looking at some new designs at the moment. Also, if you want to follow additional work that I do, I write for Film Stories. The website's filmstory.co.uk. I write for the website and I write for the magazine. So you can check out the website stuff and you can also check out the magazine stuff and buy yourself a copy. And finally... In the words of the late, great Bill Paxton. Five. We're on express elevator to hell. Going down. Two. One. Mark. Bye.